morning, everybody. Once again, welcome to Fusion. We're continuing our series this morning, From the Birth of Christ to the Birth of the Church. And last week, we were on the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning, we go to a new mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. The wisdom, messianic nature of Jesus is becoming more revealed throughout Matthew's Gospel. When the Magi came at Jesus' birth, that whisper began, Jesus is the new King, the Messiah. At His baptism, that whisper became somewhat of a murmur when the heavens opened and and the the Lord said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The whisper became a murmur that then became a chatter. As the, as, as the Lord went around Galilee preaching and healing and teaching, people began to talk, who is this guy? And then we come to the mountain in Matthew 17, and that whisper that became a murmur, became a chatter, has now become a loud shout. We get a glimpse at who Messiah Jesus is. And so I hope we're listening to him this morning. I hope we're listening to that shout. And while we do, let's pray for God's help. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning in these moments that you'll be with us as we open your word once again. Lord, as we come to behold your glory and your wonder like the disciples did on that mountain those many years ago, Lord, may we capture a glimpse of your brightness, of your glory, of your wonder. May you stir something within us that helps us capture all you are, and all you give us. Lord, be with us in these moments, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Jesus then appeared before, sorry, just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel writer Matthew and our executive pastor Darwin have something in common. Any ideas what it might be? They both appreciate mountains. (laughs) Darwin, of course, likes to trek them, high ones, many of them. If you ever talk to him about that, it's pretty impressive. Darwin likes to trek mountains, but with Matthew... Mountains may have a theological significance. Have you noticed yet from our time in Matthew how much activity happens on the top of mountains? (laughs) In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by the enemy on a mountain. We'll look at that next week. In Matthew 5, Jesus preaches his famous sermon from a mountain. On Matthew 17, Jesus takes three of his disciples up 
a mountain for a heavenly audiovisual display. In fact, there's seven major events that happen on a mountain in Matthew's gospel. What's with Matthew and mountains? Is Matthew simply telling us where an event took place on a mountain, or is there some deeper theological purpose that he's trying to frame? And I think so. You see, Matthew's gospel is steeped in his Jewish tradition. Matthew's gospel is pregnant with the writings of the Old Testament. At Christ's birth, for example, we hear over and over again the fulfillment of, Old Test of the Old Testament prophets. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expounds the Old Testament law. Permeating Matthew's gospel are important Old Testament writings and images and events and figures that would have resonated with his Jewish audience. And in the Jewish tradition, mountains are important. God stuff happens on mountains. Mountains are where people go to meet with God. The higher up you get, it was believed, the higher up to the heavens the higher up to God you are, God is on the mountains. Abraham encountered God on Mount Moriah. Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai. The temple sits on Mount Zion. God shows up in Jewish history on the mountain. God thunderously speaks from the mountain. God reveals his glory from the mountain. And perhaps Matthew by making the mountain the scene for important moments in Jesus' uh, life, is showing his audience that God is once again on the mountain. Jesus, who is God in flesh, speaks his commands from the mountain. Jesus shows up in a blaze of divine glory on a mountain. Matthew is showing us that the God of the Old Testament who speaks from the mountain, who reveals himself from the mountain, is once again active on the mountain in and through Jesus. In Jesus, God is on the mountain. Turn your ears and listen to him. Lift up your eyes from whom our help comes from, as the psalmist says. In Jewish tradition, the mountain is the arena of God's activity. Interesting. And Jesus, he brings three of his 12 disciples up a high mountain. Why it's only three of them, I do not know. Perhaps these three were part of Jesus' inner circle. He liked these guys the best. Jesus doesn't show favoritism, does he? I don't know. Perhaps these guys showed the most leadership potential, and so Jesus took more time to invest in these chaps. For whatever reason, Jesus brings Peter, James, and his brother John up the mountain. And I wonder, I wonder if these lads, as they trekked the incline, knew what they were getting themselves in for. If they had known that they would be terrified out of their wits beyond comprehension, sniffing up dirt with their heads face down, would they have gone up? Would you have gone up? Or would they have, would they have said like the Israelites did to Moses when he went up Mount Sinai? Yeah, you go on up there, Moses. On you go. We'll wait here. Yeah, can't wait to hear all about it. <laughs> on you go. Up you get. You see, the disciples, they'd been with Jesus for a while now. They'd seen his power to heal the sick and raise the dead. They knew that there was more to Jesus than a simple Galilean carpenter. In fact, Jesus had just asked his, his disciples the passage before, who do you say I am? And Peter, good old Rocky, confidently and without doubt says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. They were getting a sense of who Jesus is. 
But up until this point, the disciples had experienced nothing of Jesus that would make them want to put their faces in the mud in holy terror on the mountain where God's stuff happens. The disciples get a glorious glimpse of who Jesus fully is, God and man. The divinity that is in Jesus is revealed without. They experience Messiah Jesus on a whole other level, both literally and figuratively. When they get to the top of the mountain, Jesus' face begins to shine like the sun. We could spend a lot of time trying to explain what that looks like. I'll leave it to your imagination. His face begins to shine like the sun. His clothes become as bright as light. Jesus' divinity becomes pronounced through his humanity in a mysterious and majestical way. And there's suddenly a flurry of heavenly activity. Moses and Eliza, two saintly prophets of old, suddenly show up talking with Jesus. What did they talk about? Luke makes the suggestion that they talked about Jesus' departure. Matthew doesn't give us that reference here. If I could have been a fly on a rock or a wall for any conversation, it would have been that one. What did they say? How did they get there? Beam me up, Scotty. Where's the door? How did they get here? And Peter is awestruck at what he is experiencing. Peter recognizes that he's suddenly in a space where the divide between heaven and earth has somehow been breached. Peter wants to trap this moment and live in it forever. Peter wants to bottle this moment like a firefly in a jar. Peter wants to build a house and never leave. This is heaven on earth, he thinks. Lord, it's good for us to be here. This is a good place. This feels special. This feels good. Shall I build a shelter for you and Elijah and Moses and we'll stay here? Peter wants to set up camp in this divine moment forever. Can you blame him? <laughs> Lord, it's good for us to be here. Shall I build us some shelters? And there's a lot in Peter's statement. There's a lot in Peter's statement. What would you say? Perhaps there's a little bit of nervousness in this statement. Trying to just get something out in the moment. Some, people, some of us don't like silence. <laughs> Maybe there's a bit of nervousness in there. Perhaps there's a little bit of ignorance, not fully understanding what's going on around about him. Perhaps there's even a little arrogance <laughs> to think that see, he could somehow interject into this sacred moment with some guidance. But I think most of all, in Peter's statement, there's an air of tragedy. There's tragedy in Peter's words. And I think for two reasons. The first is that Peter's words represent the longing of every restless human soul since the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was no divide between heaven and earth. God himself walked among the morning dew, and it was a very good place to be. And Peter, up here on the mountain, with heaven around about him, tastes for a moment what that garden must have felt like. Peter must have felt that human restlessness to be at home where God is suddenly stilled for a moment. Peter has glimpsed the goodness, a goodness he's never known before, never seen before. And Peter wants to stay in this goodness forever. Lord, it's good for us to stay here. 
Peter's words reflect the tragic longing of every human soul to be where God is. And the second point of tragedy is that Peter, even though he had voiced just a chapter before that Jesus is the Messiah, he has not fully grasped who Jesus is. Lord, shall I build some skines in the Greek? Skines, that makes me sound smart. I'm not that smart. Shall I build some shelters, a tent, a dwelling? Peter wants to build a cul-de-sac where Moses and Elijah and Jesus can dwell, where their heavenly glory can abide. And this is a tragic suggestion because Peter has yet to realize that heaven's glory already has a dwelling place on earth. The presence of God already has a home on earth, and it's not up here on this mountain. It's not in some temple. It's in Jesus himself. As John says it, the word Jesus took on flesh and made his, that same Greek word, skine, made his tent, made his shelter, made his dwelling among us. Jesus is already the house, the shelter, the skine in which the fullness of God dwells. We don't need to build anymore. Jesus is the walking, living skine. Peter wants to bottle up. All that Peter wants to bottle up has been with him all along, walking with him the dusty road, sharing food over the same fire. Jesus is the walking, living skine that has been with Peter all along. It's a tragic misconception. But Peter's set right in no subtle way. <laughs> A flurry of heavenly activity increases as a blinding cloud appears over the disciples and disciples sending them face down in terror. And a voice from heaven once again proclaims like it did at Jesus' baptism, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's almost like the voice from heaven is saying, wake up. All of me is in him. My son, look at him. Listen to him. Find in him the glory, the wonders, the presence. Listen to him. All you need is in him. Not Moses, by the way, who represents the law. Excuse me. Not Elijah, who represents the prophets. Listens to him who fulfills and surpasses them both. All that Peter wants to trap and possess and never let go of has been walking with him shoulder to shoulder since he stepped off his boat in Galilee. He's right here. All the wonder you're looking for. He's right here. Listen to him. Are you a good listener? Are you all listening? <laughs> I won't lie to you, I'm not a good listener sometimes. Sometimes my wife will be talking to me, and partway into that discussion, I will turn to her and say, huh? <laughs> Just me though, right? To which she will respond with, forget it. <laughs> Maybe some of us have that same exchange. I don't know. Sometimes listening can be hard. Rowan Atkinson, the man who plays the famous character Mr. Bean, told a story in an interview on the BBC recently. You guys know Mr. Bean? Have that here? Rowan Atkinson was waiting in a mechanic shop for a car part for his Land Rover when he looked across the store and staring at him was a man going like this. And Rowan Atkinson, being famous and used to people staring at him like this, said, yes, yes, it's me. I'm Mr. Bean, hello, nice to meet you. But the guy wasn't convinced. He came up to Rowan Atkinson and goes, oh, that's brilliant. You look just like him. I tell you what, mate, you could make an absolute killing 
if you did impersonations. That is brilliant. And Rowan Atkinson is like, no, 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 no. Listen to me. I actually am Mr. Bean. And he begins to do a little bit to try and convince him. And the guy's still not convinced. He's like, yeah, yeah, pull the other one. What would Rowan Atkinson be doing in here? That's too good to be true. I tell you what, though, you do a good mimic. You do him well. You could make a killing, I'll tell you what, mate. Anyway, see you later. And he walked out of the store, leaving Rowan Atkinson behind him. He wasn't a very good listener. He missed out on a wonderful opportunity to wait with and chat with the real Rowan Atkinson right there at his midst. What a story that could have been for the grandkids. You know, sometimes I think we miss out on all the wonder, all the glory, all the power of life with Jesus because we simply don't listen to him. Jesus stands before us, revealing to us all that he is and all that he promises, yet I wonder sometimes if we're truly listening. Perhaps sometimes we think Jesus is too good to be true. Maybe we think listening to Jesus' instruction can be too difficult. Maybe we are distracted by all the voices that clamor for our, our attention. But I worry sometimes that we're not listening. Because I'm convinced that our lives, our families, our communities would know greater hope, healing, and holiness if we simply listened, trusted, and believed in all that Jesus says he is. What if we truly listen when Jesus says, I have come to set captives free? All of us captive to sin and its destructive patterns that we never thought we could shake, could know liberation in Jesus. That's what Jesus says. Are we listening? All of us captive in addiction, in all of its guises, could find a way to freedom because Jesus sets captives free. Are we listening? Those of us captive to self-hatred and destructive generational cycles could find liberation and freedom. Jesus has come to set captives free. Are we listening? What if we truly listen to Jesus when he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today, your heavenly Father is looking after you, giving you your daily bread to endure whatever it is that you may encounter. I think so many of us would sleep more. We'd find more joy. We'd smile more if we truly listened, believing what Jesus says. What if we truly listened to Jesus for our community? If we truly heeded Jesus' instruction to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, I believe that the political, the racial, the social, and the familial division that we experience in our community would be less if we simply listened to Jesus. In the words of Jim Gaffigan, it's simple. The voice of God still echoes from the mountain. Listen to him. In him is the way to heaven. In him is the riches of heaven. In him is the glory of heaven, both now and in the age to come. Listen to him. The disciples are face down on the mountain, faces down in terror, Faces down in humility, faces down in vulnerability, faces down in submission. God, you are way beyond what my eyes can see and my ears can hear. The disciples are terrified, but I love this picture. Jesus came 
and touch them. Those are five words that explain the gospel to me. (laughs) Jesus came and touched them. Out of the glorious cloud, Jesus comes to them and he touches them, perhaps even bending down to do so. He lifts them to their feet. Get up. Don't be afraid. What a picture of grace. That even in our fear, our weakness, our ignorance, even in our slow to hearing, all the things that keep us face down, Jesus comes to us. He touches us. He lifts us to our feet. And he says, don't be afraid. He speaks words of comfort and assurance to us. What a picture of grace. And as the disciples look up, they saw no one except Jesus. The frantic, awe-inspiring, heavenly display suddenly becomes focused on Jesus. The lens becomes narrowed to him alone. All the wonder that they have just encountered now becomes encapsulated in him, the living Skene. The disciples are now a little bit more aware of who Messiah Jesus is, a little bit more attentive, a little bit more understanding of what it means that he's the Son of God. In fact, Peter reflected upon this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. Beautiful concept, the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Jesus, says Peter, is majestic. He came out of the majestic glory. But even with all that majestic glory, Jesus did not stay on the mountain in heavenly bliss. As has always been Jesus' prerogative, he left the height of glory to be among the lowly. Jesus left the mountain to descend to the valley, even to the valley of death. As has always been Jesus' prerogative, he brings heaven down. And as the disciples descend down the mountain, The disciples now know a little clearer the person that walks at their shoulder, that he's indwelled with heaven, that Jesus in their midst is heaven in their midst. All the goodness that Peter wanted to trap and possess and bottle is by his very side. God on the mountain is now God down in the marketplace. God on the mountain is now God in Mary's living room. God on the mountain is now God down on the valley. No need for tents. For God no longer dwells in temples built by human hands. He lives within Jesus. There's another mountain scene in Matthew's gospel. Matthew loves mountains, if you haven't got that yet. (laughs) There's another mountain scene in, in the last chapter, Matthew 28. Jesus takes his disciples, all 11 of them, up a mountain. And again, God stuff happens. (laughs) Jesus ascends to heaven. But he promises his disciples the words we've already heard today. Surely I am with you always, even until the end of the age. As Jesus ascends on the mountaintop, he pours out his spirit in his wake. The God on the mountain is now God within you. The God on the mountain is now in you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, is Jesus' promise. And what Jesus says to his disciples, he says to us if we're listening. If we heed their witness, he says it to us too. 
by his grace, Jesus is with us, speaking to us, drawing us to himself always. Even when we're short of hearing, he's still there, always speaking, drawing us to himself. We don't need the sacred heights or the holy dwellings. We don't need energetic conferences or amazing preachers to hear and encounter Jesus. The Messiah on the mountain is the Messiah in the mundane, always. Jesus speaks, calling us to listen always. Jesus speaks through his word and the witness of his apostles. Jesus speaks through the sacraments that we celebrated today. Jesus speaks through his people who bear his message and his witness. Jesus speaks through his creation. Jesus speaks through our suffering. Jesus speaks through our joy. Jesus speaks forever and always, drawing us to himself. He speaks in the midst of our vomiting children. (laughs) He speaks in the midst of tax season. He speaks in the midst of the dark and lonely night of soul. He speaks, get up. (laughs) Don't be afraid. I'm here. I'm coming down the mountain with you. I'm going to be with you always. Listen for him says Friedrich Buechner. Listen to the sweet and bitter airs of your present and your past for the sound of him. He's with you, always speaking to you. A while back, I had an opportunity to go to a Q&A with the previous president of Fuller Seminary, Dr. Richard Mao. And Mao shared of a time when he was on a hymn committee that was putting together a new hymnal. And there was some debate among the committee about a particular old hymn, an old hymn in the garden. You know that one? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, no one will ever know. Well, some of the committee thought that these words were a little cheesy, (laughs) didn't want to include this hymn. Others thought it lacked good theology. Some thought the word and the language was just outdated. But Mao... Mao wanted to include this hymn, prompted by a testimony that he had heard from a Chinese Christian man. A Chinese Christian man who had undergone cruel persecution for his faith. Day after day, recalled Mao, this dear brother was sent down a sewage pit to shovel waste from one side to the other, to break his character and have him renounce his faith. And as our dear brother went down into the hole, into the pit, to go about this cruel task, he would sing to himself that hymn. I come to the garden alone, while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, no other has ever known. The man recalled now said that Jesus was with him in that very pit, just like he promised. Speaking to him in the midst of every shovel. All he needed, all the hope he needed, all the strength he needed, all the guidance he needed, all the comfort he needed was right with him just as Jesus promised. This is my son, said the voice on the mountain. 
in whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we enter into the season of Lent, Lord, may you help us tune our ears, tune our hearts, tune our lives to listen, to listen to all your wonders, to listen to all your truth, to listen to all that you say you are. Lord, may you continue to renew us, to restore us, to redeem us, to forgive us and raise us to the life that you desire for us. Lord, throughout this season, may you speak and may we listen by the power of your Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.